We're continuing our series in Romans, Romans part one, the first section of Romans uh, this week, and we will be in chapter one again, verses 18 through 32 today. And you can find that on page 939 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chairs. So I encourage you to, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one of those so you can follow along, begin to get familiar with it. It's page 939 in the black Bible, um, Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 32, calling it this week the bad news. Last week we looked at his introduction, a summary statement in verses 16 and 17 that kind of set up where the whole book is going to go, focusing on the good news. The word is the gospel, literally the good news. This week it's the bad news, and the bad news really helps to frame the good news. I don't know if you've ever had this happen uh, where you have a friend who has a good thing happen and a bad thing happen, and so they set it up by telling you the bad thing first, right? And then you can rejoice in the good side. Uh, sometimes kids do this, like if they uh, wreck their car, have a little fender bender, right? They might want to set it up and say some terrible, horrible story of all these awful things that happen and say, just kidding, I just had a fender bender, right? I don't know if you've ever had that kind of situation. Um, but we like to frame good news with bad news. Often it helps us celebrate the good side. Well, the reality is you, you actually won't even get the good news of the gospel unless you realize how sick you are spiritually. It's one of the major problems that Jesus ran into with the religious leaders in his day. And so I'm speaking to you as religious people, telling you that the religious people during Jesus' time had a really hard time getting the gospel, understanding the kingdom that he was offering in himself, because they didn't think they had anything wrong with them. So today, we're going to look at the bad news, and Paul is going to set it up in a really tricky way. He's going to give us the worst of the bad news. He's going to talk about the most unreligious, rebellious people. And what he's doing is he's roping us religious people in, and he's saying, and you're just as bad, right? So let's try to follow along. So I encourage you, on the one side, if, if you're one of those religious folks that's lived a, a decent moral life, watch out, Paul is coming for you, okay? And if you're one of those people that has hit rock bottom, that has rebelled, that has just strayed from God, be, be encouraged, he's taking you to the good news, okay? So either side, you need to, you need to be encouraged. He's going to help us to understand the gospel better. We're going to start out by just reading the first half of this section. So it's a long section, and then I'll read the rest of it as we move through the morning. So starting in verse 16, to give us some context from last week. So back up to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel or good news. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, so in The good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is 
blessed forever. Amen. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us uh, to understand what he's doing here this morning, and we'll continue looking at this in more detail. Um, God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would um, help, help to get your word into our hearts. And so we pray that your spirit would meet us here and open our minds, open our hearts, so that we would no longer resist, but that we would be tender towards you, we would be open-minded towards you. Um, God, I pray that you would take away any distractions and help us to focus, help us to hear you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, he's, he's laying out the bad news first to frame the good news, and so there's kind of a series of negative things that we need to hear, and I just want to uh, assure you that I understand it's hard sometimes to hear bad news, but this is a very deep and uh, hard series of bad statements that set up the good news of the gospel. So remember, just frame that in your mind. The word gospel means good news. And so we're looking at the bad news so that we can understand the good news. The first thing that Paul uh, un- unveils for us in this section is that we have no excuse. We have no excuse. So if you're being convicted of something, right, just think in your relationships, if your parent or if your child or if your best friend or if your spouse charges you with a wrong, what's the first thing that you do? You go on the defense. You think of an excuse, right? You're like, well, this is why. Because you're so terrible, right? That's, that's the most common thing you can go to. There might be other excuses like, you know, I forgot or I don't know what happened. But what he's saying here is this, with this bad, bad uh, news before God, there's no excuse. We have no excuse. There, there's, no, there's really no defense that any human being has before God. Look, look again at verse uh, 18. Uh, I've got this on the screen as well. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so what it's saying here in verse 18 is that we actively suppress the truth. So human beings are responsible before God. We know who he is and we say, I don't want to worship you as the creator. I would rather see myself as the creator or see myself as God or worship this other creature as God, but I don't want to worship you. So there's a relational separation there that we are all guilty of. We suppress the truth. Uh, a great uh, little essay that you can find online by Jay Bujashevsky is called Descent into Nihilism. And he talks about his own life of trying to say there is no God and how he realized as a professor of philosophy that in order to continue saying there is no God, that he had to rip out everything in his life and his own heart that imaged God. And what happens is you start having to just kind of take your own life apart. You start denying all sorts of crazy things, and he calls it descent into nihilism because he, he realized he was descending into this pit of his life just not even making sense anymore. Thank God he, he was saved out of that. He came to repent of his sins and come to trust in Jesus, but he just talks about that process by which we suppress the truth. He said, if you think of your own soul and mind as like a computer panel, and you're going in and you're just like ripping out all the circuits, and you just keep ripping out one circuit after another, you're actually becoming less human as you suppress the truth about who God is and how he's imaged in your life. So in verse 19, it says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has shown it to them. And he's not talking here about a missionary going to the country and saying, hey, here's who God is, here's who Jesus is. That's important. Paul will get to that in chapter 10 and make that very clear. We have to tell people what Jesus has done. But there's a, there's a revelation before that. 
Theologians talk about it as the, the uh, two kinds of revelation. We have general revelation. It's just kind of everywhere. God is. And then there's special revelation, the scriptures, uh, the prophecies, the recordings we have of who Jesus is in the gospel. That's the special or specific revelation. So there's general or universal revelation, the revelation of creation, and then there's special revelation. There are two kinds of ways that God is communicating with us. And here Paul is focusing on the general revelation, right? It's everywhere. So it doesn't matter whether or not we've been in church or not. We've been outside when we know God exists. We've seen the sunset. We've seen the rocks. We've seen the trees. We know God is there. And Paul is saying, if you deny that, you are actively suppressing a truth that you know. He goes on in verse 20 and says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Clearly perceived. So again, he's saying, you know. You know. No matter how religious or how non-religious you are, you know he's there. You've seen his power. You've seen his attributes in what he's made. It's been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So they are without excuse. Now, I want you to notice something here. Paul is talking in the third person, right? He's talking about those people over there. Because we're not those people, right? Like, we're the good people. We're here in church. We're not those bad people that deny God, right? That's kind of, he's setting us up, right? He sets us up so that he can turn the guns on those of us that are religious in chapter 2 and chapter 3. So I just want to kind of help you pay attention to what he's doing here. He's setting broadly that all mankind are without excuse, but he's talking in the beginning like, but really I'm talking about those bad pagan people, right? Not about us good religious people. But then, again, be careful, in chapter 2 he's going to turn it on us and say, well, you also are without excuse. So here's a picture I have of what this looks like as we darken our hearts. Verse 21 says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So this is the suppressing the truth we darken our hearts, we close our eyes. I grabbed a picture here of someone covering their eyes. Um, this is like when someone says something you don't want to hear, you say, la, 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 I can't hear you. Um, when there's a scary scene in a movie, you cover your eyes, right, unless you're really tough, but you cover your eyes and you say, I don't want to see that, right? And, and this is what every human being does. This is what we do. We see God, God's there, God's made everything. I owe him my allegiance. He is the creator, I'm the creation I owe my allegiance to him. But no, I'd rather do my own thing. So I'm just going to pretend I don't see this. And in that process of covering our eyes to the reality of what he's revealed in creation and nature, in that process, we, we darken our hearts. We become futile in our thinking. And Paul says we have no excuse. So number one, there's always this question, if salvation is through Jesus and Jesus alone... Um, people often say, well, then what about the people that never heard of Jesus, and what do we do about that? Well, well, Paul clearly nails it down here and says, all human beings are accountable to God, period. Now, there might be this additional special bonus revelation and redemption in who Jesus is that saves us out of that denial, but we're all completely responsible, right? God reveals himself, and we have a choice. That's what it's saying. We have a choice to say, okay, or no, I'd rather not. And what Paul's saying is that universally, men are responsibly suppressing the truth. Saying, no, I don't want you. We're just replaying what Adam and Eve did. I don't know if, if you're this way. When I was a kid and I first heard the Adam and Eve stories in my uh, darkened heart and futile thinking, I would say things like this. I would say, 
well, if I was Adam, I wouldn't have done that, right? Have you ever thought that? If I was Eve, I wouldn't have done that because I'm better than them. They're just, you know, they're just the dumb founders of the human race, but I would have made the right choice. But what we live out is we actually make that wrong choice all over again. We do the exact same thing. God says, here I am, and we say, no, I'd rather have the creature. I'd rather not have the creator. And we, we turn from him. So none of us have an excuse. And so the question for us is, will we recognize that? Will we admit that? This is God's invitation to you to say, okay, I admit it. I give up. This is your, your opportunity to tap out. Or it's an opportunity for you to just keep going. It's an opportunity for you to double down. Keep denying him. Keep suppressing the truth. Keep pushing it down and pushing it down. But as Jade Budzieszewski says, eventually you're just ripping out all the control panels of your mind and there's not going to be any motherboard left. There's going to be no circuits left. You're just ripping everything apart. You're no longer going to function as a human being. The next thing that Paul says is really fascinating. He says that worship is, is the actual problem. Worship is the problem. Um, we're, we're worshiping the wrong things. He says this in verses 21 through 25. So this first verse I've already read, but I'm going to repeat this one. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. So again, here's the idea. We know who God is, but we choose not to honor God as God, which sets up the uh, impl- implication that we're honoring someone else as God. He goes on in verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So if you're like me, you might right here be thinking, okay, he's talking about the Egyptians who worshipped like the dog-headed king and the frog-headed God. And you know, like you've seen those pictures, right? Those ancient primitive people. Again, we're much smarter than them because we have iPhones and we have cars and we have Bluetooth-enabled devices, Right? So we would never worship a person with a frog head, right? So again, there's this danger we have of separating ourselves from the text and saying, that's not me. He's talking about the primitive ancient peoples that bow down to, to funny you know, monkey statues and, and frogs and stuff. But he goes on and he says, no, th- this is a, a much broader, broader picture. That, that's just the most explicit cartoonish version of it. But we do the exact same thing anytime We give our allegiance to anything that's not the creator God of the universe. We're we're bowing to the the frog-headed God. It's just not a frog, right? We we bow to the God of relationships. We've watched all these romantic comedies, and and we're bowing to the ideal relationship. And I don't know how you make that into a statue. You, You probably don't. It's just a power that grips your heart, right? Or you bow down to financial security. And again, you may not make it into a statue. You may not have a dollar bill on your mantle that you bow to and offer incense to, but you give your heart to it, and it consumes your imagination. So so we do the same thing. We just don't make them into little statues so that we can uh, see how cartoonish it is, right? Again, another way that we are lying to ourselves and suppressing the truth and pushing it down, pretending it's not there. We're telling ourselves we're not worshiping anything at all, but Paul says it is a worship problem. We're, We're worshiping creator, uh, creation instead of creator. goes on in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So Paul says part of the natural consequence of false worship is the degrading of our bodies. 
And so again, here is where it might be easy for us um, religious people to say, yeah, see, pagans, they, they live immorally, and that's a problem they have out there. But again, Paul's setting us up. It's a universal uh, human problem. And so the, the way I understand it is this. Um, as cultures go, generally, my understanding, as a culture descends into more and more sexual immorality, the culture itself begins to fall apart. And so there is this sense in which sexual immorality is kind of like a flag being waved. It is, in some degree, worse in some ways in that it breaks down a society. But Scripture says there's no sin that's worse than another in its power to separate you from God. So we have to be very careful that we, we understand, like, yeah, there's scary things that kind of tear apart our humanity. And so I completely agree with traditional culture, right? Like, yeah, there's good things we want to hold on to in traditional culture. It's good. We want, to, we want to fight for some institutions that uphold things like family and the sacredness of marriage. Definitely, we want to hold on to those things. We want to hold the line on some things. But we also, as we do that, need to recognize we're just as sinful as the next guy. We're just as separated from God as the next guy. We might be fighting for some institutions that help kind of hold society together, but we're just as sinful as the next person, no matter what your pet sin is, no matter what your false worship is. So Paul says they dishonor their bodies among themselves. And in verse 25, he says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the Creator rather than the creature, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we're reversing. We're switching this around, right? We're supposed to worship the Creator that made all things. We owe our allegiance to Him, but instead we worship the creature. We worship stuff instead of God himself. And it's interesting, it says that we dishonor our bodies because we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So again, there's this descent, there is this, there's this process. And again, I think we see it most clearly in culture, but it, it happens in our life as well. Even if you're not running headlong into rebelling against God, you're telling yourself that you want to walk with God, you want to do the right thing, in any area of your life, if you begin worshiping the stuff instead of worshiping God Himself, that leads to the degrading of your body. You begin to uh, disobey God in weird ways. You begin to break down in weird ways. You begin to disintegrate in weird ways. It always leads to, um, this worship always leads to other things going wrong. Here's an illustration uh, I would give for that. Tim Keller has become really famous in the last 20 years for writing on idolatry, right? Idolatry is the worship of false gods. And he's become really famous in helping us understand that it's not that these things are always bad, right? Relationships are good. Money is, is good. Security is good. Even sexuality is good. God just says, you know, keep it in these boundaries, in these covenant boundaries. And so these are good things, but we make them into God's. So Keller references Luther, who you've heard me talk about a million times, who says, anytime you break any of the commandments, you're breaking those other commandments because you first broke the first commandment. There's some other God that you're worshiping, and that leads to this other commandment breaking, right? So if you have a problem with lying, um, one of the ways for you to grow, to repent in that area, is to figure out what the deeper sin is. So, so at one level, right, if you're lying, I would just say, as your pastor, stop, okay? That's the easy way to say it, right? Just stop. But I think it helps us. It gives us insight 
and to kind of the sinister nature of how we, again, push the truth about God down to recognize if you're lying, there's some false gods you're worshiping. And you probably haven't painted a golden statue and put it on your mantle, so you have to do some thinking. You might have to ask the people that know you best. You have to recognize, what's the false god I'm worshiping that's leading me to lie? And it could be different for different people, right? So, uh, you know, any number of us in here could be liars, and one of us is lying because we worship acceptance of other people. Another of us is lying because we worship money, right? So, so different false worships lead to us breaking maybe the same commandment. And, and you can apply that for, any, for anything, right? Uh, if you're having problems with faithfulness to your spouse, that, that could be because you're worshiping pleasure. It could be because you're worshiping acceptance. It could be because you're worshiping all kinds of, you know, we, we don't know what that is, but as you trace that back, it helps you to more clearly repent and say, that's not my God. Topple that idol and say, Jesus is my God. Jesus is the only one that can save me. These other gods can't save me. To repent of that. A picture here of ancient temple. Uh, when Pastor Stephen and I, uh, actually I should say ancient temples, plural. When Pastor Stephen and I went to a church planters conference in Rome, it was amazing to walk around Rome and realize that there was like a temple everywhere you turned. There was false worship on every block, right? And so again, it's obvious when you build a big temple and there's idols and there's priests burning incense, that's obviously false worship. But I just want you to understand we live in the same society, right? This society is completely crumbled. In the same way, ours is going to completely crumble as well. And all the false idols that we're worshiping now are not going to stand. Only Jesus is going to remain. So people from 2,000 years in the future, people from 2,000 years in the past, could, could time travel into our culture, and they could just walk down our streets and be like, yeah, false idol, false idol, false idol, false god, false god, false god. And they could see it. But for us, we just kind of swim in it, and it just seems normal. In Rome in the first century, this seemed normal, that you couldn't walk 10 feet without finding another god. That just seemed normal to them. And the, the air that we breathe, the world that we walk in, seems normal to us as well. But we're worshiping other, we're worshiping other gods. Worship is the problem. The last thing that Paul says as he descends here into the last few verses is that wrath is getting what we want. Wrath is getting what we want. And I think this is the scariest part of the whole thing. So, yay, we'll end on bad news. Um, it says the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men in our first verse, right? In verse 18. And that was right after Paul had said um, that salvation, the righteousness of God, is revealed in the good news. So God's righteousness is revealed in the good news. We see how righteous God is, not only that he stands apart from us as right when we're wrong, but he also gives us his righteousness as a gift in Jesus. That's the good news. So that's good news that reveals God's righteousness. And then our evil, our sin, reveals God's wrath. God's wrath is revealed against that unrighteousness. And God's wrath, in general, right, is his anger. You may not even know the word wrath. Wrath means anger, right? So God is angry at our sin. It's not the way things are supposed to be. If someone's ever perpetrated a horrible injustice against you, that's the best way to understand it. There are times when human beings are rightly angry about things. Most of the time, we're not. So if you have an anger problem, don't keep lying to yourself and saying, I'm just a high justice person. 
you are maybe 10% of the time, okay? In James, he says the righteousness of God does not, or the, the anger of man does not a, a accomplish the righteousness of God, right? So we need to get that straight in our own mind. Our own anger is not going to bring the righteousness of God. But we can get a little glimpse of it because there are times when we are rightly angry. There are times. We're rightly angry, someone's done a bad thing, and we're angry about it. And we get a little taste of what the real anger and wrath of God is. And it is right, and it is appropriate. But here's how it's being revealed. Throughout the rest of Romans, we're told there's a coming day of wrath, right? And we need to be safe in Jesus to survive that day of wrath, whatever that looks like, the destruction of all evil in the universe. But there's a way in which it's being revealed right now. It's happening. It's, it's present tense. It's being revealed in the present tense. I'm going to back up to verse 24. Whoops. In verse 24, before we get to verse 26, God gave them up, it says in verse 24. Do you see that? Look at verse 24 real quick. I'm going to see all your heads look down at your Bibles because you all have Bibles you're looking at, right? I'm putting the verses up here, but you're supposed to still hold the Bible in your hand too, okay? So it says in verse 24, God gave them up. Now skip to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Now skip to verse 23. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. So the way that God's wrath and anger is revealed to us is that God gives us what we want. God gives us what we want. Isn't that scary? So we usually think of God's wrath in the Zeus picture of like the lightning bolt, right? Like, whoosh, you did a bad thing. Your house blows up. But here it's saying God actually displays his wrath on humanity by saying, okay, the way C.S. Lewis phrased it was, uh, okay, thy will be done. If you don't say to God, thy will be done, then God says to you, your will be done. He says, okay, you can have it. There's a famous documentary done a few years ago called Supersize Me. Any of you ever heard of this one? Um, I think his name was like Murdoch or Medlock, or I can't remember what his name is. Anyway, they, they found out that half of it was faked, but it was a great idea, okay? It was a great idea because in the idea, the premise of it was that he went to McDonald's and every time he was offered a supersized option, he would take it. And so he ate nothing but McDonald's for one year, and he supersized every time they asked him if he wanted a supersize. So he's just eaten all this extra calories, right? And he only gained like 25 pounds, which I'm thinking, that's not, that's not that bad, really. But his premise was, this is destructive to your body to eat this kind of stuff. When you, just, when you don't stop, you just take it in, it's destructive. And in a sense, this is a picture of how God's wrath is revealed in our life. We say, I want this stuff, and God says, okay, well, if you're going to not trust me and, and turn from me, I'll just... Let you do your own thing and let you see how that works out. God allows us to hit rock bottom. God allows us to, to get what we want. And it's, it's destructive. So let's back up and look at the verses and we'll finish up here. So God gave them up. We see this repeated three times. This is the phrase that says, this is how God's wrath is being revealed in the present tense. It'll still be revealed in the future. There will be a day of judgment of God's wrath. But in the present tense, it's revealed by God giving us up. He gave us up to dishonorable passions. And here's where Paul, again, focuses on the pagan people to get us religious people to agree with them. And he says, hey, look at the pagan people. Their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So he takes the sin uh, homosexuality, and it, just to be clear here, Paul's not saying it's worse than other sins. He's starting with this sin that is most offensive to the religious people. He's saying, see this sin that most religious people agree is bad, this is the result of God giving us over to our passions. And he starts there, and then he goes on and says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so Paul is tracing these sins back and saying, when you sin in these ways and you say, this desire that I have is natural because it's there, and anything I desire must be good because I desire it, right? You, you miss how it's a tautology, how you've got a circle of logic there, but you say, I, I want this so it has to be good. God wouldn't allow me to want something bad, right? Any of you ever have children? Anybody have children? Have you been around a kid? Has a kid ever wanted something that's bad for them? Yeah, like that's part of being a human is learning that we want bad things and we shouldn't want those things and we should figure out a way to not drink the poison that's going to hurt us. And so that's just part of being a human being. And so Paul, again, he, he picks on homosexuality specifically not because it's worse than other sins, but because the religious people would agree with him. And he's roping them in. So we need to see this from both sides. One side is Paul is agreeing with traditional culture, naming this as a sin. The other side, he's going to disagree with traditional culture by saying, in traditional culture, you're also sinners. So we need to see there's, there's two angles from this. So he says, they didn't acknowledge God. He gave them up to a debased mind. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, maliciousness, right? So he's just hammering all these really negative sins. Look at these sinful people. They're so sinful. Come on, religious people. Can't you agree that the, the sinful people are sinful? And the religious people are like, yeah, Paul, go get them. They are so sinful. And he keeps going. And he's like, they're gossips. And the religious people are like, wait, hold on, Paul. Don't include me in that list, right? They're gossips. He goes on. They're slanderers. They talk bad about people. Wait, what? They're haters of God. They're insolent. They're haughty. They're boastful. He's starting to mix up sins here. See, he's starting to mix in the sins of religious people with the sins of the utterly rebellious pagan people. And he's starting to show that religious people and pagan people are both sinful, are both under the wrath of God. He gives us over. He says, okay, you want to have a fake religion? You want to be judgmental and act like you've got it all together, but you're gossiping about people and you're boasting in yourself and thinking that your flesh is why you're saved and why you're better than other people? Well, I'll give you over to that and we'll see how that goes. It says they're inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There's this transition that's already beginning to take place. It'll come really strongly in chapter 2, verse 1. That's when he will then say, and you religious people, right? That's where he's going to really obviously turn, but I want you to see that he's building towards it now. He's building towards it here already. He's saying there are these obvious sins that the pagan world engages in, and we're going to call it like it is, and we're going to say it, it's sin. And I just, want to in, I just want to appeal to those of you that struggle with these particular sins. We're in a time in our culture where our culture says certain sins are okay and certain sins are not. And that changes like every 50 years. 
So just know that because everybody obviously thinks that this is okay now, that's just a fad we're in right now. There's always a, a pet sin, right? Go back 100 years and everybody just knew that slavery was no big deal and mistreating other races was fine, right? There, there's this, there are these fads where we become blind to certain sins and say, yeah, it's no big deal. Just recognize we're always in one of those moments. We always have a big cultural blind spot, and sexual immorality is the cultural blind spot of the moment. That's the sin that we think, well, you know, I mean, it's not that big a deal. They're nice people, you know, and we, we struggle with that, and we excuse ourselves, and we excuse others. So again, this is not me picking on you that struggle in these particular areas. This is me just saying, we're all sinners, and we all struggle. And please don't disrespect my pet sins by saying, your pet sin is okay, but my pet sin is not, right? We're all strugglers. I'm tempted towards certain sins, and so are you. And we all have to carry our cross and deny ourselves and say, I trust Jesus more than I trust my own desires. All human beings struggle with desires that are not to be fulfilled. And we are to take our trust out of those desires and place our trust in God, who is the only one who can truly fulfill us. So please don't disrespect the temptations that I face day to day by saying that your temptations are some other classification and it can't be handled. But I'm supposed to deny my desires for the rest of my life. We all have desires that God calls us to deny, to pick up our cross and follow Jesus and say, Jesus, you're enough. So I invite you into that life of following him, of trusting that he is enough. And I believe, I believe that it'll be good. We call this repentance and faith. Um, sometimes, we, sometimes we say turn and trust, right? Repentance is kind of the negative side of faith. Repentance is letting go of the sin you think will save you. Faith is grabbing on to the Savior who will save you. So they're really two sides of the same coin. Repentance, faith, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus. So we want to invite you to let go of your sin. You don't have to stop wanting it, stop ever doing it again before God will save you. Just say, oh, that won't save me, and turn to him. And he'll help you continue to let go of that, right? He'll put his arm around you and he'll say, we'll work on this together. We'll, we'll deal with this. It'll be an ongoing battle in your life. It won't just magically go away, but we'll walk together. Jesus will walk with you through, through that. I want to invite you into that relationship. I want to wrap up as we think about this bad news and how really ultimately the bad news is God giving us over to it. In chapter 8, in Romans 8.32, he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him over for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the bad news is that God gives us over to the desires of our heart. The good news is is that God gave Jesus over to be the sacrifice for that sin. That's the good news. I hope the framing of the bad news helps you see the beauty of the good news, that even though we are without excuse, even though we are worshiping gods that are not really gods, even though God has given us what we want and that has just darkened our minds even more, there's good news. The righteousness of God is revealed in this good news that God gave Jesus over. So this phrase that becomes so scary, God gave us over to our sin, he gave us over to our sin, he gave us over to our sin, that phrase is resumed, it's turned in chapter 8, and we're told that God gave Jesus over for us all. I want to invite you to Put your faith in him, no longer in your pet sin, but in him. And we pray for us and respond in worship together. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you call us to yourself and you reveal your good news in Jesus. 
God, as we uh, look at the bad news, as we recognize our own sin patterns, help us to let go, help us to turn and trust in you. We thank you for the grace that you offer us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.